Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do dive into something and treat it as an experiment. Like what, You don't have to just like pinball around or not know what to do. Like Pick something and dive into it, but take to it as what am I going to learn about myself from this and let that inform your next pivot. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome David Epstein to the show. David is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And he also wrote the bestseller, The Sports Gene. Both of these books have been translated in more than 20 languages. His TED Talks on performance science have been viewed more than 11 million times. David has a master's degree in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and he's also a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. In this episode, I talk to David about greatness. This is a topic of mutual interest of ours. You know, if there's one thing we know for sure about greatness, it's that there's no linear path to it. David and I discuss the complex relationship of talent and hard work in specific domains. Although there is no formula for greatness, we can all agree that persistent effort and fierce determination are necessary ingredients. But so is talent. In this episode, we have a nuanced discussion of that dance between nature and nurture on the path to talent. It's a very delicate dance. We also touch on the topics of self-actualization, creativity, fulfillment, and moral greatness. This was a really rich and great chat with a good friend and someone who I've talked to personally about this topic for a long time, and it's great to get a lot of this on the record on the podcast as we explore this fascinating topic, which I know you will find fascinating as well. So without further ado, I bring you David Epstein. Man, it's so good to see you. And uh, we have so much to catch up on, obviously, as a, at a friend level, which we won't do today, but hopefully we can do that some other time. But we have so much in common um, in terms of our interest in the determinants of greatness is something that I've been a topic I've been obsessed with my whole life. And, yeah. and you as well, probably. So, and you've written a lot about it. And there's, there's multiple ways to uh, inward in this topic. Let's start off with the great nature nurture debate. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start off there, kind of understanding greatness from a developmental perspective, biologically, genetically, culturally. 
how do these things all interact? And, you know, I, I suppose the answer to that in one big way is it depends on the field, right? I mean, we can't come up yeah. with a general theory. Or do you think we can come up with a general theory that applies to all different domains? You know, in fact, not only do I not think we can come up with a general theory that applies to all domains, I don't think we can even really come up with a general theory, you know, within a single domain across people. Like, I, I think there are definitely principles, though. So maybe that's the wrong thing to say, because we know we're never explaining all of anything that we're explaining, right? Mm -hmm. But I think human development is so incredibly complex. Like, I sort of think of it, this might be a bad analogy. You can tell me, though. I hope this is, Scott, like, because we're friends and, like, I admire your work and brain, I think I'm unfortunately, like, feeling that I'm like free to, to be a little more informal and digress with you. So you should tell me if, uh, if that's not, yeah, of not course, fair. of course. So I was using a, this analogy where I was talking to someone about nutritional epidemiology, you know, all this research on how what you eat impacts all these different things in, in your life. And we know this is important and you should eat real food and everything like that. But the science of nutritional epidemiology is like a complete mess. And it turns out, you know, it's like, Eggs cause cancer one day, eggs prevent cancer the next day. There's actually one study that I refer to. I don't can't remember what the official name is, but it, as the everything in your fridge causes and prevents cancer study, where it's like plotting all the studies of different foods showing that they've all been found to cause and prevent cancer in various studies, mm. except for bacon, which unfortunately was only on the causing cancer side. But, mm. you know, mental health is important too. But it's like, I think one of the reasons is people underestimated the complexity when you're studying nutrition, like people eat different foods for all sorts of reasons that have to do with their culture, with other behaviors that they have. There are all sorts of other things they do that impact their health, right? And so basically that whole body of work, not all of it, but a lot of it has to be thrown out because I think the complexity was underestimated. And I would say that's even less complex than human development in general, which has just all these factors going into it. And I think we often underestimate all the factors that go in, uh, so we underestimate that complexity. So, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard to have a general rule even for a given domain. And yet, I still think we can take out sort of principles and useful frames that are that are sort of general That's thinking. Good. I mean, something you did, like you wrote a post. So, man, interrupt me if I'm like going too much on tangents. I know myself, so I don't get upset when people interrupt <laughs> me because I know how digressive my like my books are digressive. That's me organizing my brain. Okay, so interrupt me when needed. I'll feel but, free but to you, interrupt you. Yeah. Okay, good. Remember you wrote, I think it was a, a post or an article where when Anders Ericsson's peak came out, which yes. he was he was writing about, you know, the, the so-called kind of father of the 10,000 hour rule, even though he did not like that moniker. Right. And he wrote the book because he wanted to sort of clarify, so much had been written about his work that he wanted to kind of clarify what he thought about his own work and the so-called 10,000 hour rule. And there was a sure. part in the book where... He has sort of an aside and he says, like, by the way, this framework that I propose applies best really in places where we know the tenets of success and someone can tell you what they are and watch you while you're practicing and then tell you how to do it right. And I think you wrote and he said, so, you know, like, and then he listed places where he didn't think it applied as much. And it was like most of the places where most of us work. And I think you wrote a post yeah. saying something like that's that's not just a small offhand remark he made. That's like. For example, the entire domain of creativity that he's he's setting yeah. aside there, and so that was the big, the big uh, clash between me and him, and in 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 our lifetimes, because he's uh, may he rest in peace. Yeah, I had an incredibly wonderful and generative relationship with him, largely based on disagreements, and I and I miss him even though we were yeah. constantly disagreeing. Me too, and he welcomed them. He welcomed them absolutely. But there there's a case where 
you put forward a strong argument that I think was Im- important to have a strong argument so that we could test it. And then even he at a certain point started saying, but it's different in different domains. And so even though we don't know everything that works, I think we can learn some things that are important even if we don't have a perfect general model. Yeah. And in that article um, that you're re- referencing called uh, Creativity is More Than 10,000 Hours of Deliberate Practice, I just talked about all the sort of complexities, things that may look like nature or actually nurture, some things that look like nurture or actually nature. And and you start adding up all these complexities and it's sort of like, well, what do we know? You know, what can we say? Yeah. Because I edited a academic volume called The Complexity of Greatness Beyond Talent and Practice, I believe was the subtitle, and it had experts weigh in. But I, w- I was hoping to write a concluding chapter summarizing some main principles and never was able to do that because there really weren't. <laughs> there really weren't. Mm. And I'm like, well, what is, then what is the point of scientifically studying this if we can't, uh, say, you know, have a more general principles? There are plenty of people out there, by the way, and I won't start mentioning names, but there are plenty of people out there that are perfectly confident that they know the general principles. They'll write books, you know, um, and they'll have blog, very popular blogs with hundreds and thousands of people where they're, they're like, let me tell you the secret of greatness, you know? And it's like, well, would you mind telling the scientists? Because we even figured it out. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad you have it figured out. I'm glad you have the secret figured out. If there was a secret or a blueprint, don't you think like, Everyone would become geniuses all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. That's a. Uh, it's not like people read yeah. those books and become geniuses, right? It's not. Has anyone ever become a genius because they read a book that said this is the secret to genius? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I think the question is, does it make them improve in anything, right? As opposed to to making them become a genius, right? Because like, if I read about you know Picasso's or or something like, literally, I just got a new book about like all these like quirky habits that like a lot of uh, great writers have called odd typewriters, you know. Mm, and it's not because like, I think if I write in crayons like James Joyce did that I'm going to become James Joyce, but sometimes there's still stuff that you can pick out that's useful or yeah, just interesting. That's true. And like for you, you're a responsible thinker. So of course you're not going to be, you know, cause you see that you, you lean into the complexity, right? So you're not going to be saying the, having an easy time summarizing some of this work at the same time, I'm pretty confident that you could tell a whole lot of people a few things that would likely improve their creativity a bit. And so even if that's not a general model or a quick fix, I'm very confident you could do that for a lot of people, that there are things that we know that you could tell people that would likely make many of them, you know, more creative. But, but to get to your point about sort of the gurus that are very popular, that always reminds me of Phil Tetlock's work, you know, on, on forecasters, where there was basically an inverse relationship between fame and accuracy over the like 20 years of forecasting uh, research, in part, I think, because the forecasters who were not very like open-minded, not very flexible-minded, could speak very authoritatively all the time. So it's like the people on TV making prognostications are like scientifically proven to be the worst forecasters in the world, but they sound so authoritative, right? And so when you lean into the complexity, it can be harder, I think, to sound super authoritative all the time. You know what I mean? Not to be necessarily more creative, but to... I mean, I want to focus, I really do want to focus on greatness. See, I think that's, that's where I, I think there's things that may be different, you know, like, yeah, you know, to be a little bit better, to be a little more creative, but the greatness is such a fascinating thing on its own. It's a beast all on okay. its own. Right. And I think like when it comes to the nature nurture debate and greatness, I think the research does suggest that talent matters a lot. And then the question is, what is talent? Well, talent is not something that's fully formed or fully 
you're not born with all the skills that can lead to talent. But, but I do think there are certain potentialities that are influenced by genes, then you can agree or disagree with this, that aid in rapid knowledge acquisition within a specific domain. And there are people that from a very young age clearly show uh, once they make contact with that domain, some, actually sometimes it may take much later in life to make contact with that. You see that huge uh, rate of growth that is undeniable. So I want to start there and see what your thoughts are on that. I think that's well said. You know, and of course, we both know, like the work, for example, of Ellen Winner, right? Who looks at, of course, prodigies, basically. And they will have, you know, and she's, she's studied some who have a great ability to progress in a domain very quickly, much more so than their peers, but don't have what she calls the rage to master, right? That, yeah. that like drive to keep doing the thing. And others that have a rage to master, but don't have that ability to progress faster than their peers. And so I think she's, she's documented some interesting cases of both of those separately. And when you see like the really sort of stunning prodigy, it's when those things come together at the same time, basically. I think we can be a little narrow minded about some of that because I think there's like the more and more I've learned about human development, the zigzagger and messier I think it is. And so even stuff just to take like a sports perspective, right? There's this very well known phenomenon where coaches of young people, you know, of kids are very frequently mistaking biological maturation for talent, right? Like some kids are, maybe they're a few, maybe they're some months older, or maybe they've just biologically matured faster and a coach sees them as better and says they are more talented, they have more potential, but really they're just seeing someone who's further along their developmental trajectory. And so I think those things are real, but I also think we need to you know, I think, I think talent is very real, but I also think we, we need to work hard to like keep our talent funnel wide so that we're not, we're working hard not to be deselecting people in a way that, that doesn't even allow them to kind of develop, you know, more slowly, basically. There was this like brilliant uh, scientist, Chelsea War, who was like working with me in Australia when they had the Olympics and then the UK when they had the Olympics. And she would refer to this as you need the pipelines for slow bakers and fast risers, you know, the people who develop really quickly. But then they realized that many of their top performers were these slow bakers who came, you know, in a much more uh, kind of gradual development process and that they could have a competitive advantage by not kind of pushing those people out, essentially, just like allowing them to hang on. That's a fascinating topic to, to double click on there for a second, because I love that distinction. You can clearly see there are, there are like, uh, was it flash in the pan sort of people? Um, they, they sort of just come out of the gate and uh, you can just see greatness or see the great potential for greatness that then they clearly do become great. And I can give examples. Like I, I love watching the YouTube videos of like some of my favorite comedians in their first David Letterman appearance, you know, like, mm. and they're essentially fully the fully formed adult that we all know now. It, it, it's recognizable even when they're like mm. 19 or 20, like uh, Jim Carrey, he, the, his first appearance. I'm like, there, no, Jim Carrey was Jim Carrey, you know, from a very, mm. you know, like that seat is obvious. When I even watch, I watched Yo Yo Ma's performance at age two for JFK. It's on YouTube. I, I uh, was so excited to, to, to realize that was archived. And I was like, wow, that's Yo Yo Ma. <laughs> Yeah, there, so that's interesting. So I think there is that, but I don't think we need to generalize that to everyone. I do think there are those who can apply principles of expertise and with, with much more modest talents over the long run who eventually 
appear to us to be great. And, and maybe even we put the label on them talent, but that really doesn't explain them as much as the harder work that they put in. Not that people that I just mentioned didn't work extremely hard as well, but they were more flash in the pan. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, in some of those mentioning Yo-Yo Ma, who actually did, he, he actually, he cycled through, he like quit to instruments early in life. Well, he went through his so-called sampling period much faster than most uh, musicians do, but he still had it. But I think there's a reason why a lot, a lot of times those like most astounding prodigies show up in a very small number of domains, like classical music and, and chess, where they're doing things that are really based on pattern repetition. And that, that kind of, that speed of growth is not as realistic in, in other domains that are sort of more open-ended basically, you know, what, what Robin Hogarth calls the wicked learning environments, where it's not just static rules and repetitive patterns and, you know, quick and accurate feedback and all that stuff. Well, I mentioned yeah. comedy, which is pretty open. You know, I, yeah. would, I would say yeah. that like Jim Carrey's unique brand of comedy emanated from his being early. You know, I also looked at like Robin Williams, you know, and, and his first appearance on Letterman. It was Robin Williams. Like, that's fascinating to me, you know, that like as someone who studies self who studies self-actualization, I believe so much of self-actualization is like getting in touch with who you really truly are as much as you can in your life, as opposed to all the ways society tries to move us in this direction, that direction, and all the ways in which we have self-doubt and all the ways in we want to conform and we don't want to stand out. But, you know, there are these amazing examples of people that got really deeply in touch with the pattern recognition that was unique with them within them at a very, very early age. Just sort of their, their self-knowledge. Yeah. I mean, obviously, once a comedian's on Letterman, they're like, we're basically talking about like an Olympic gold medalist already, right? Like mm -hmm. looking at them yeah. as at that, yeah. that level of, uh, of performance. But I, yeah. I can definitely believe that a way to accelerate that is to know a lot about yourself, right? I actually think comedy in some ways too can be a little bit of a more kind learning environment in the sense that m my sense and, and tell me if I'm wrong is that a lot of the really good comedians spend a lot of time like tossing out material to small audiences and then just, and then like waiting. They're like scientists of their material. They like throw something out at smaller yeah, clubs, that's a good point. you know, and they practice they it. They get immediate and get feedback, that feedback. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, right. So they're, I think trying to make, take this more sort of wicked learning environment and turn it into something sort of more sports like where like you take a shot and you look like, where did it go? And then you adjust and adjust and adjust. As open-ended as comedy is, I still think it's it's rare to be able to get that quick, like act, feedback that quick and accurate in the things that that most people do. I think domains that allow that, you know, sometimes people can progress a lot faster. It's a great point, and I, I look at my own sort of draw to social media, and I'm, I'm trying to be honest with myself why I really am drawn. Why, why am I on Instagram so much? Why am I on Twitter? You know, like I could get so much more work done <laughs> perhaps if in that intervening period, if I wasn't on social media and, you know, writing a book, you know, if I'm working on a year long project or two year long project with no immediate feedback, there's something really mm -hmm. soul sucking mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. and lonely and social media in a way like gets my craving for just some sort of immediate feedback in some way, even if it's just taking an idea from my book and putting it on Twitter and see how many likes it gets. It makes me feel like I'm engaging the world without having to wait two years before engaging in the, with the world. That's interesting. That that gives me a bunch of thoughts. One of which is, so I I took like Twitter off my phone months ago, and so I haven't been on very much because like 
for, for whatever reason, the barrier of having to go to the URL has been like a very high one for me. It just doesn't happen much. <laughs> and whenever Good I'm for off for a though. long time, well, whenever I'm off, I used to always go like on detox for like a few months at a time. And it would feel like such a smaller part of my life when I went back. Um, and a smaller part of the world when you haven't been in it for a while. But, but I would say for you, when I, I haven't, I haven't been on there as much lately, so I haven't been seeing what you're doing, but I thought you were like a really good force on Twitter. Like you, I think you're a very, you know, seem to me like pro-social, optimistic, you know, person who feels deeply and empathizes and yet do hard work to sometimes share ideas that people may not like, you know, sometimes about talent um, online and to be fair about them and to be civil about them. And so I think, you know, you raise the like sort of the goodness quotient of that space that you're in on Twitter. And so I think it's, you know, you're, you're being productive on Twitter for other people also in, in terms of the feedback to you, like that, did you need that feedback when you're away writing a book for, for two years? I'm like the total opposite of that. Like when I'm, when I'm like, great, I have an excuse to go off all this other stuff and just like be in my head in the book. I'm like, this is the best. Yeah. Why do I? And then I like go back when I, you know, try to promote the book. And then, and then I get sort of stuck into the cycle of being there. But when I'm off, I, uh, yeah, I guess I feel differently in that. <laughs> well, I, I should say, to be fair to myself, when I get really towards the finishing line, when I'm in the last six months or so, I do like to go in a cave. That is true. That is true. But a two year, that's daunting. That's daunting in a cave. I like to really uh, have a, a good spurt at the end of complete silence. That much I like. Gotcha. So I'm, 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 I'm like a quarter there with you. So in terms of general principles, I want to circle back to the idea of the 10,000 hour rule. Who called it the 10,000 hour rule? Malcolm Godwell? Did he ever say that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Anders Ericsson, as much as he's tried to disavow himself from the 10,000 hour rule thing. He wasn't completely innocent in really making the claim that a certain amount of hard work or that hard work and in, in sort of the way he describes it, de- deliberate practice is linear with progress. Yeah. Is how I'd frame it. He really does believe that or did believe that. And that's the thing that I don't think can be defended fully. Yeah, I agree. I think to, to be honest with you that, you know, I know sort of, not that he and Gladwell were in touch, but but he pushed back against Gladwell's characterization of the 10,000 hour rule. But what I think a lot of people missed is that my feeling was that Anders was more extreme, not less extreme than Gladwell. I think that's right. And I think people that's right. sort of intuitively felt he pushed back because like, oh, Gladwell's saying in this extreme way. I'm like, no, no, no. Anders just thinks he's not saying extreme enough. Yeah. And that's right. That's right. And Anders, you know, if you go deep into that 10,000 hours, I Again, he wouldn't call it that deliberate practice framework, literature, whatever you want to call it. There's underlying it is always this so-called monotonic benefits assumption, which is that two people get the exact same, two people at the same level get the same amount of improvement from the same unit of practice. And that just doesn't hold up anywhere in skill building literature, like literally anywhere. It doesn't hold up. I mean, I would literally send him prodigy art articles about prodigies and he said, no, that we don't have all of the, I bet if we got their diaries, we would find it's all about deliberate practice. And I'm like, no, I'm trying, I'm, I said, I'm like the most extreme examples that are like, obviously not, they're not deliberately practicing. Uh, you know, they're making leaps that are far beyond what are, what are practiced. And there's studies that take people that are at the same level of something, put them on tightly controlled training for something in a lab and they progress at different rates, you know? All the, so that was my, when I would, share with him some of that work, he would say, but these aren't elite performers in a lot of cases, because, you know, these lab, like large lab studies aren't going on with like 
there are only so many elite performers anyway. And my, my feeling for that was, well, if you're posing a comprehensive framework of skill development, if you can't account for square one, like if you can only account for someone who's already standing atop the Olympic medal stand and look backward, then you don't have a development model because you can't, you can't even account for the starting. At the same time, I do think that he did really important work in emphasizing that type of practice matters, probably in convincing, you know, in, in, in compelling other people to start researching practice in important ways. And also in like making strong arguments in some cases that give people like you and I something to hold so that we can say, well, let's test this against the world. You know, let's, let's see how this holds up. Sometimes I'm frustrated by work and skill development because I can't even figure out exactly what they're saying. And so it's hard to use it as a way to learn. And so I appreciated yeah. that he made these strong arguments and then engaged with you. if You wanted to engage with him. Yeah. So I appreciated that, that about him. You know, he engaged, but he never changed his mind even a little bit. <laughs> That's right. You don't think the you don't think the what? loophole that we talked about that he put in his book was a bit of a mind change, a little bit of a mind change? Ooh, interesting. Admitting that different kinds of fields may be more ap- applicable to the principles in his book than others. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe that was a, a that took a sort of a career of engaging with scholars and others uh, to, to, to add that caveat. It was a one paragraph caveat. <laughs> um, it's a one caragraph, but, but it's like a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might even have been a footnote. I, I had this, I, had to rem- I remember I wrote something cheeky in my review for Scientific America because like in this throwaway <laughs> footnote or whatever. Well, it's tricky because I, um, I sent him that Scientific American article. I, I uh, had a whole correspondence with him and he said, you know what? Creativity can be equally applied by my deliberate practice framework as well. I'm going to write an article about that someday. So that's what he said. Okay. Um, well. to me. So that's, it's interesting. I do think you're right. To, and, um, I thank you for pointing out that he, he initiated the whole expert performance approach in psychology. He pioneered a whole field of investigation. I mean, that's no small thing. Uh, huge, huge props, right? To that. And, uh, and, Super uh, generation. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's a Cambridge yeah. handbook of expert performance when lots of scientists are studying this topic. I guess it, what's difficult about pop writers who want to make a lot of money and write the next <laughs> big book on how to be great, I think the problem for them, you'll hear all the time, the, the thing they'll say is, uh, well, look, there's nothing we can do about the genes. I'm just focused on what we can do to help people change. Yeah. Okay. So you hear that all, that's like their get out of jail card. But what mm-hmm. if I was like, you know what? That doesn't really get you out of jail. I think a really, truly honest, book on the topic. As I try, I try to do it on Gifted. If we're going to be really honest, we have to admit that, that maybe there are some things in our lives that we will never have. And there are some things that we can work on and focus on that are right for us. Not that there's general things that we can all work on. I'm not sure if I'm articulating my point well at all, but I sort of feel like this is why I'm interested in self-actualization versus Everyone can be great in everything. Yeah. I really do believe that, that self-actualization is, is where it's at in this regard. No, okay. What do you think of what I just said? Is it controversial? <laughs> it's, it's totally uncontroversial among some people and very controversial among other, you know, there are these like, yeah. it de- depends what set yeah. you're talking to, but the, yeah, it's true. I think there are sort of two things there. You mentioned like the integrity of pop writers. And I actually think a lot of, there's a, quite a number of scientists that play that same card. That's like, well, why would I study gene? Nobody should study genetics because there's nothing you can do about them, which Absolutely. I think is a, a serious misunderstanding because one of the reasons you study genes is so that you can understand 
what is environmental influence and how to yeah. work with it. The reason to, yeah. so like this huge amount of research is confounded because people say, I'm not interested in genes, so I won't study them. You're like, and that's why you're not sure what you're actually seeing in, in your study. So one reason, again, is, is you study genes so that you understand what environmental interventions help. I think what you said about self-actualization to, to turn a little bit is really important, whether we're thinking about that from, you know, I think one thing that came out from my first book was about genetics was that one reason the 10,000 hours thinking may have some, may backfire in some ways is because you actually don't want to be randomly selected into the thing you start practicing in. You want to learn some stuff right. about yourself and right. match into something that's a good fit for you in a lot of ways. And I think that requires these sort of habits of mind of like self-regulatory learning of everything you try, becoming a scientist of yourself, saying, you know, what am I trying to do here and why? Who do I need to help me? Like what fit my expectations? What did I learn about my strengths and weaknesses and, and the things that I enjoy and the things that I hate? And so to me, that was sort of the, I think there were, there were positive aspects of, of the 10,000 hours thinking, but I think one negative aspect was this, was it implicitly downplays the need for self-knowledge and sort of makes it seem like you should just like pick something as early as possible and stick with it. And of course that is like picking something to stick with at the point of your life when you have like the least self-knowledge is actually not the way to go, I think. Sticking with something when you have the least self-knowledge. Can you, can you double click on that a little bit more for me? Yeah. I mean, think of like, you know, of course, like the psychology find the end of history illusion, you know, that, oh, that catchy, catchy name that people will always say, if, if you ask them that, have you changed a lot based on your experiences in the past? Say, oh yeah, of course. Mm. You know, well, are you going to change a lot in the future? No, like now I'm pretty much, now I'm pretty much know who I am. And so people, whether it's like values, how they want to spend their time, you know, their favorite music, like whatever their personality, they underestimate future personality change. It does slow down over life, but so we're always like works in progress, constantly claiming to be finished basically. And the fastest time of personality change, I think is about 18 to like your late twenties, which is, I think the it kind of exactly when we're usually telling people like now's the time to figure it out. And I think that's, you're asking like someone to choose a long-term future for a person that doesn't exist yet in a world that they can't possibly guess at yet. And so I think, a less high uh, probability for good outcome kind of proposition than if you say like, do dive into something and treat it as an experiment. Like what, you don't have to just like pinball around or not know what to do, like pick something and dive into it, but take to it as what am I going to learn about myself from this and let that inform your next pivot. Don't your 10 year plan, like fine, have it if you want. But if that means you're not going to pivot based on things you're learning about yourself in that period, then I think you're not going to be working toward optimizing your so-called match quality that fit between who you are and, and what you do. That's a great point. And the idea of not giving up too soon. I think you do find a lot of examples throughout the history of greatness of people who did end up becoming great, but they, they weren't, they weren't the best when they started. Yeah. It out of all their peers, you know, again, it's hard to dis disentangle sometimes talent and uh, that rate of development, the advantage they had versus the tenacity they had. But I will say that is quite a fierce interaction when you have, uh, you know, I think case of Michael Jordan, for instance, maybe that you look at the interaction between the talent and the ferociousness of wanting to learn. That interplay is, is so ferocious in a way where they, those people, they refuse to quit. They refuse to give up. There's almost a ferociousness to not give up. People often cite him as saying though too, right? Like is, did that, did that make him the world's best baseball player? No, it's like he still had to fit where he fits. <laughs> 
you know? I don't and think he that, had that yeah, said, that talent. I sh- yeah. I'm, I'm always hesitant to trot that out, though, because in my opinion, although he was a bad minor league baseball player, he was a much, much better baseball player than most people dropped into the minor leagues would have been, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Like, most people dropped into the minor leagues after not having played for a long time would probably hit zero. So, like, he didn't have a good batting average, but he didn't hit zero. But, you know, I think it's it was important for him also to find a spot where where he fits, e- even with that that ferociousness, that tenaciousness. Yeah, and of course, you don't know what it would have been like if all that time spent playing basketball, he honed his craft of baseball. Yeah. Yeah, how good he'll be. You know, I'm just thinking like, you know, Abraham Maslow, who writes about self-actualization, I mean, he talks a lot about fit. Finding self-actualization is finding the thing that is the best fit for you in the whole world. I mean, he, he's very dramatic. And the way, the way that he talks about this is actually mm-hmm. a quote I wish, I wish I could look up real quick. Um, but I don't think I'll be able to on the spot. I'll send it to you later, but it's like, yeah, it's pretty dramatic the way he puts it. But I'm like, no, that's kind of cool. I kind of, I kind of dig it. And viewing life in that way, I think puts a lot of pressure, takes a lot of pressure off of us. Um, he also has this writing. He, he, he ponders. He said, what does the person do who has aspired to greatness their whole lives and, and then realizes that they really don't have what it takes to be great? He, he asked this question once and he, I think he's a little, maybe not, it was an unpublished essay I read of his about this. And I, and now I found that very interesting as well. Um, what do you do when you face the reality of a situation? Do you, do you feel like your life has failed because you didn't become great? I mean, is greatness all there is to life? What is a life worth living? A lot of people are great or miserable, right? About their lives as well. So all these kinds of questions, I've, I've been pondering them my whole life. I don't, I don't have the answers, my friend. <laughs> this goes way beyond. I mean, people have been pondering those questions for millennia in yeah, different forms and haven't come up with all the answers, right? Like th- you're, these are yeah. questions you can find like pretty readily in like the Greeks. Every generation recreates these. Yeah. So if you, if you yeah. could answer those ones, you wouldn't have to have any more podcast episodes like ever again, you, you <laughs> nor, nor anyone else. When I think like achievements of mine professionally that have been the most sort of objectively successful certainly haven't coincided necessarily with the times I've felt most fulfilled in my life. And I have to say mm. that has been a little bit of a, of a rude awakening at, in the past uh, yeah. for me. So sometimes now, so occasionally now, when I look at someone who has just achieved something great, you feel good for them. But sometimes I also wonder if I should feel a little bad for them because I think in some of those cases, the people are, that's like the moment when they are understanding that, oh, this, this doesn't do what I thought it was going to do. You know, it doesn't fill the hole that I thought it was going to fill or whatever. And does that mean that they then say, well, well, I guess I just got to go even bigger. Or is it, oh, maybe I have to kind of diversify how I think about this and, and, and my identity. And so I think that's a, that's a challenge too. But I'm, I'm curious. I want to ask you a question because you mentioned that you feel that that Maslow saying that very dramatic of find like the best fit for yourself in the entire world takes yeah. pressure off of us. And I could see that from either way. So I'm curious to hear you dissect that a little bit. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. One could definitely see that in a way of like, oh, wow. Uh, there are a lot of things in the world. What do I do? It's like How a constant FOMO, right? Like that's like, it was, yes. was he saying like, you got to go through all of Instagram no. and find like the, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. no, no, no. In a way it's not FOMO. It's the opposite. I think that's why it takes the pressure off us to recognize there's really only one thing in the world that's the best fit for us is the point, you know? Um, and okay, maybe we'll never find it. Yeah. Maybe that puts on a lot of pressure on us to find it. Okay. So yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on to find that one thing, but it also makes us the idea of, fit being the criteria as opposed to greatness being the criteria, I think 
is what takes the pressure off us. Maybe that was the point I'm making because we put, oh my gosh, like people who are high achievers are constantly comparing themselves upward. Yeah. Everyone's comparing themselves upward. You think, you know, the person you're hugely, hugely jealous of and everyone can think of someone that that person, I guarantee you that person is constantly on Instagram looking at someone else, hugely jealous of that person, of someone else. Upward. Everyone looks upward. And that game is not fulfilling. That game is, well, that game never, never will fulfill one soul. But the idea of like, wow, I'm doing the thing in my life that I feel like I am a pretty damn good fit for. That seems like a successful life to me. You know, like I feel like, you know, discovering and being able to have the time and, 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 and finagle my life in a certain way where mm-hmm. I can focus just on those things uh, or focus on those things deeply. I'm like, that's a life well lived. It doesn't have to be greatness. Doesn't have to be the criteria for a life well lived. Or, you know, I think we could, you know, maybe we need other definitions of greatness. Like what is, what is a life yeah. greatly lived for that, for someone, you know, which always sort of makes me think of like a lot of people know that like their friends and their family are their priority, but like they don't, they don't schedule those things like they do the things that advance them in, in work, even if they're as or more important. So maybe we need to think about our sort of dependent variables of, of greatness a little differently. And I think also, I guess why I, th- why I sort of jumped to like, whoa, that sounds like a lot of pressure is whereas you put it something it's a pretty damn good fit which i think is yeah. is better than the best in the world cuz there is of yeah. course like this research on maximizers and satisficers whereas like the people who like oh you know have to like really are hung up on always that there might be something better can have tons of opportunities tons of achievement and be like quite miserable because there is always something so you have to find like a level for yourself a little bit in some ways Absolutely. So that's, uh, yeah, I'm glad I did it. I came up with a satisfying definition of, of fit. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, so I just wanted to mention something when we were talking about creativity early, cause like you, you that the satisfying dovetails a little with something where like some of your writing influenced me. In, I know we're not supposed to be talking about creativity, mm. but I think that's, you know, oh, it's writer, okay. that's creative, creative, creative greatness is a form of greatness in my view. It's like yeah. one of the things that made an impression on me in Wired to Create was, um, that you got to have a lot of ideas. Like you got to throw a lot of stuff out there and some of it's going to be crap. And so I, after writing a first book and it becoming like thinking it was like just my own oddball interests and then it sort of taking on a life of its own. And, and I got a little bit of paralysis of like everything has to be that level or better, you know? And it made it hard for me to do anything. So I, I like left that whole field and wrote about other stuff, which was fine. And then when I left like a next job, I, I didn't, I wasn't putting out enough ideas because I had this sort of like perfectionism, not perfectionism, but you know, like things had to be like more finished. And so I sort of thought back to that, that the good creators put out lots of ideas. Like they, they just generate more, they generate more bad ideas and, and good ideas. And so that was like partly what prompted me to start a newsletter to be like, I need a place where I can feel like I can just put some ideas out there without them having to be too perfect like where I can think out loud, where I can just like generate. Um, and I found that tremendously liberating from this sort of paralysis I was having and, you know, allowed me to, to generate a lot more ideas that, that led into other interesting places. So it's sort of a combination, I feel like, of being a little bit influenced by something you wrote in that work and trying to get off the, the maximizer train a little bit. That's good. That's good. Yeah, the equal odds rule. Although I think Dean Simonton has recently called it something, re- renamed it 
to the equal odds something else, not rule. But anyway, no, that's exactly right. And even in those models, talent matters. But, but of course, that's, that's, there's certain like basic restriction of range criteria for things that are, that are obviously true. Like Erickson, he's, he, the only thing he's ever admitted to, he says, well, in the case of sports or a case of basketball height, he'll admit that. <laughs> Which well, is just because, it. just because it's easily measurable with your eyeball. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. But come on, everything has their own thing. Like, I don't want to start coming up with ideas. I don't want to be ableist. I don't want to be, but there are, um, all sorts of domains and things where there are some like basic ingredients to, to be in that, you know, sort of situation. I mean, basketball is a really good analogy to explain like restriction of range a little, by the way. It's like in, it is I actually did this for my first book. If you look at height among the American men and points scored in the NBA, there's like a very high positive correlation as you might imagine. <laughs> but if you do a study of only NBA players, you restrict the, your range to only NBA players, then the correlation becomes negative because guards score more points. And so if you didn't know what you were looking at, you could do that study and tell parents to have shorter children for them to score more points in the NBA, right? Because you don't realize the impact. And, and, and I would say like the overwhelming majority of expertise literature suffers from this restriction of range problem where you've selected people who are have already been before that highly, highly, highly pre-selected for the activity they're doing. And so you've removed a lot of the variation in, in things that got them where they are. So you're not going to learn anything about it from your, from your study, basically. Very important to recognize that. Um, I've seen that firsthand in like at Carnegie Mellon, the computer science program, they weed out people quickly that first year. Mm. Like that first year, they are like, like look, we're going to make you jump in the deep end and see who can swim mm. and who can't. Um, you also see that in the, the beast barracks or of the, uh, uh, you know, West point, West point. Mm. Yeah. West point, uh, various things that, yeah, absolutely. They, they weed you out, um, quickly. And then if you only do the study on those who made it and look at correlations, you're missing out on lots of potential variables that were important there. Yeah. So I think the restriction range idea is a really important one, but at the same time, same time, the ungifted in me is saying, we shouldn't count people out too soon in a, in a K through 12. I don't think we're in any business before. There are a lot of things we're non-business, uh, before the age of 18, you know, like, uh, no, what is smoking, right? Smoking's not allowed, drinking. I also feel like we should also ban teachers from limiting student potential. <laughs> Can we add that to the list of things that should be illegal I mean, below the age of 18? Do you know what I'm saying though? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a very strong believer that like the, most of the most of the high performers n never mind most people are going to follow a more sort of zigzaggy trajectory especially the way that the work world is now today like in, it's in range i wrote a little bit about the so-called the dark horse project at harvard which was like looking at i love that how people found fulfilling work like some of them were you know very financially successful and everything but they were really looking for fulfillment and the the re it wasn't called the dark horse project initially but they like brought people in for inter informational interviews and people would say, like, not everyone. There were some people who had followed a linear, you know, the fast riser track. But the majority had said, like, well, I tried this one thing, didn't really fit me. So then I went this other way and learned I was good at this other thing. Then this, you know, that way, and I liked part of that, but not all of it. So that, and they, like, zigzag and use each stop as a lesson. And so they would tell the researchers, like, so 
you know, don't tell people to do what I do. Cause like I came out of nowhere. It was a one-off. And like the majority of people were saying that that's why they called it the dark horse project. The norm presently, not, not the exception, not the only path, but, but I think it is the norm. And so it doesn't really behoove us to try to enforce, you know, to overlay on that, like a much narrower path. I was, I was reading an OECD report recently. It said kids tend to start are, are narrowing their, like what they think are possible career choices by age seven. Um, in a lot of countries now, like there's like a lot of the jobs they might be considering aren't going to exist are going to look very different <laughs> by the time they get there anyway. I don't like that. <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm agreeing in a lot of ways with your, the main thesis of your book, um, range, why generalists triumph in a specialized world, especially when younger. And you do in your book, you talk about a specific age range. I believe it's eight to 16, if I remember correctly, something like that, where you say, well, there, there's this age range we really should. Um, allow people to cross to study things from as wide fields as possible, right? I mean, I think a lot of that age range was sort of, you know, looking at things like sports and using it as an analogy and stuff. I think in mm. in the wider world, I think it's hard to put an age range on it. Like the, sure. for yeah. example, like you know, some of the research I looked at at 3M, which is I, the reason I got interested in the company 3M was because I was reading these like world innovation indices that come out all the time. And, and I recognized all the top, it would be like Apple, Google, you know, these names that I really recognize. And then it'd be like 3M. And I'm like, the post-it guys? Like what? <laughs> that, why are they up there? Turns out they have to make like a quarter of their revenue every year from products that didn't exist five years ago. They have like 7,000 inventors. They're in all these different fields. And they did an internal study looking at breadth. Well, inter, I mean, they published it, but they were studying their own organization where they operationalized how broad or specialized someone was based on the number of tech classes they had worked in as characterized by the patent office. And they had these generalists who had worked in a lot of different areas who made contributions. They had specialists who had dove deep into areas that had made contributions. And there were dilettantes who weren't that broad or that deep who didn't do so much. And then the biggest contributors were these, what they called the polymaths who would like go to a certain level of depth and then sort of come up and go to that level of depth in another place and come up and go to that level of depth in another mm -hmm. place and then like connect these different areas. And so you yes. could make contributions as a generalist, as a specialist. And then the big, the most power was these, these sort of polymath who sometimes came in with an area of depth and then at a certain point sacrificed more depth for breadth and other times came in sort of broad and, and then homed in on a certain area. And so there wasn't necessarily a particular, like a, like a singular trajectory that they, had to follow. So really cool, really cool stuff. Um, I think we would be really remiss to not have a really open, honest discussion about the link between creativity and mental illness. I feel like there's some prominent examples in the news right now, although that might be giving some people too much credit, <laughs> calling them geniuses. But I think that this is a topic I've studied and you are very interested in as well. And you, mm -hmm. you looked into it as well. Um, so we can compare notes. Well, I mostly was benefiting from your handiwork research. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, I appreciate your modesty. Um, you write beautifully no, no, about I mean, the stuff, and yeah, yeah, but like you like basically laid down a blueprint of the available research, and then I just read it and wrote a newsletter post. <laughs> well, thank, <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So let's talk about this, David. It does seem like there is a connection, and it's a very interesting connection because it seems to be like up until recently, I would say the research shows full blown mental illness is, is not conducive to creativity. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not conducive to the kind of creativity that is both useful and and novel. It may just be novel, but not useful. Right. And and right. look, I want to just bring up Kanye West because it's so in the news right now. I think we're kind of seeing an example where 
a lot of the, you know, keeping mental illness at bay, kind of being moderately high, men, you know, has led to some great, great music. But I think that he's perhaps at a level that's, that's kind of, maybe it's explaining our, the research as well. It's, it, he's, he's at a level of extremity that I don't think the ideas he's saying right now are very practical, useful, have utility value for making the world a better place, even though they may be very, very novel. Although they're not <laughs> that novel, I guess. So when you look at the arc of human history, but yeah, they're not novel at, yeah, yeah I would, I would yeah, say they're not even the novel. Opposite of novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's, it's novel to bring, to, to say such things in mainstream media. <laughs> but yeah, I, so I'm just, I'm just trying to only get some of your thoughts on that on, and on the, on, on that link. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think the, the weight of literature has, has in many ways debunked that sort of folklore that, that mental illness and creativity are like inextricably linked by showing, in fact, that when you look at a lot of creative professionals, they are, at lower risk in general, or having a whole yeah. host of mental illnesses. There are some nuances in there. And I think the study that I found the most interesting on, on millions of Swedes, like authors, uh, were like the one exception, I think, in the creative professions. So I think as a general principle, we can just dispense with that idea. That, And I don't think it counts like if someone's eccentric and has like is unusual, that's not mental illness, right? That's, right. that's like... Being creative shouldn't define someone as, as being mentally ill. Right. So, but I think at, by and large, we can put to rest that idea. But what I think is fascinating about that study that you highlighted was they found that creative professionals, while they, they themselves were at reduced risk of being diagnosed with a mental illness, their family members were at increased, they were more likely, they were at sort of increased chances of having family members who'd been diagnosed with mental illness, right. which I think is a kind of fascinating finding that has a genetic hypothesis behind it. Absolutely. You know, being uh, a full on schizophrenic and having full delusions that you're a hundred percent not grounded in reality, that's not going to be something that really resonates with most people who are not in a similar state. But you could see a case where the more watered down genetic versions, which predispose someone, a child to not have schizo maybe have schizotypy, which is a personality trait, proneness towards um often magical thinking, but uh, you see that often a lot in the spirituality world, by the way. I think a lot of the people in the spirituality world are high in schizotypy. So these these sorts of uh watered down traits, you could absolutely see how that would be conducive to creative thinking and um and having people see things in new ways. And I think when you're saying like watered down too, I know the the hypothesis from that, and there is some work to support it, and I think I linked it in the newsletter, is that Let's say, you know, most, most traits other than like a, you know, a small number of rare diseases are caused, not caused, are influenced by a large number of genes, also influenced by environment, but in, influenced by a large number of genes, each of which has a very small effect. And so if you say some family, you know, has a certain set of genes and some members of the family have schizophrenia, and let, let's just say like, just for argument's sake, there's like, 10,000 different gene variants that could predispose them to schizophrenia. Some members of the family, you know, if a member of the family has more than a thousand, then they're going to have schizophrenia. Then, so you have some family members who, who have a serious mental illness and are incapacitated from that and can't do that kind of work that is both novel and, and useful. But you might have other family members who, who get some of those variants that might 
predispose them to kind of, like you said, divergent thinking, but not so many that they are, you know, not functional or, or not able to connect their work with things that resonate with people. And so that's sort of the hypothesis of where a genetic link, again, not to the exclusion of, of environment, but that might, might help account for that reason. Why, why do you see an increase, increased incidence of family members with diagnosed mental illness, uh, in, in, in the families of creative professionals. Yes. And I think great points. And I think we're talking a lot about the arts because it's very interesting when you start looking at the sciences, you see higher preponderance in a lot of ways of autistic like traits. And that's not a mental illness. Autism, I don't, I don't classify that as a mental illness. Some people classify as a developmental disorder. I don't even love classifying it as that, but it is a, uh, a certain, it's a different way of processing information. That causes, uh, people to perhaps become a specialist. I, I mean, I just, I, I want to make a link here to like your framework. And I think like I would predict that people in the autism spectrum tend to be more specialized. People on the schizotypy spectrum tend to be more generalizers. And there are differences between like the sciences and the arts in that. But I think that's probably too, way too broad a generalization. But have you, have you thought about that at all? I don't know. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Simon Baron Cohen's. Systematizer, yes. empathizer framework, yeah. where, yeah. gosh, how do I put that in a nutshell? But where, where like a systematizer brain is more into like sort of categorizing and, and, and focusing on things and would be more like that, that autism brain, basically, and more likely to sort of get really into, you know, like a technical niche, for example, and focus on it really in, in kind of an obsessive way. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that makes some sense to me. I think if we're talking about the level of like Nobel laureate type scientists, then I wonder because those like in one of the, you know, recent Hambrick and McNamara talent studies where they showed that there was, it was mostly on sports where they were showing there was an inverse relationship between like performance at the high junior level and the high senior level where basically the people who were the best juniors never became the best seniors. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned, they cite some, German study, I think it was, that I haven't read because I think it's in German, but that was saying that Nobel laureate scientists tended to progress more slowly earlier in their careers because they were more interdisciplinary. And so they didn't get tenure as quickly as some of their peers. So at that level, it seems like some of those people are so good at making, I guess it really depends like what they're getting it for. But in some cases, making these sort of fascinating connections between things and are, you know, and are, are known to be much more likely to have like aesthetic hobbies outside of their work and, and that kind of stuff. But I think in, Anyway, I think there's, I think there's definitely something to what you're saying, but, but at the very, very highest level, I'm just sort of thinking out loud and, and, and wondering about it. I like that nuance. Um, well, Gregory Feist has shown different personality traits apply to good scientists versus great scientists. There actually is a, bif- there, a bifurcation there. Oh, interesting. I think what's, what is problematic, shall I say, about the situation is that the reward structures in science for getting grants and things is, is actually not being too out there. Uh, is actually, it actually rewards good scientists. I don't think the, the basic mechanism of science rewards great scientists and great scientists usually become great scientists despite this scientific system, not because of it. You just reminded me of this like awesome technical report to the government, which sounds super boring, but Vannevar Bush, <laughs> who was the head of U.S. science during World War II, which involved, like, mm. you know, obviously the Manhattan Project and, like, mass production of penicillin and all this impressive stuff, wrote a report for the president called Science the Endless Frontier that you can find all over the Internet. And mm. basically, he's describing successful innovation culture. 
And, and this report led to the creation of the National Science Foundation, which funded like a half century of like mind blowing, you know, from the internet to like x-rays and everything. And in it, he's basically saying like, you know, we can't perfectly predict where breakthroughs going to come from. We need to put a bunch of money into, into people that are curious and interested and like let them follow their, their things. And that, that requires some inefficiency, but that's the way it is. That's successful research culture. And so it's sort of, you know, to the government's credit, they established National Science Foundation and, and funded a lot of stuff that was kind of open-ended. I mean, but then already by the time, like when I was a science grad student, I mean, I didn't go on to my PhD like you did, but already by that time, I remember having to fill out grant applications and basically having to say what I was going to find before I started the study, which I think is, is right, quite counterproductive right. to that. Not, not that you shouldn't have a hypothesis, right? But I thought it was basically asking for like an application before I even knew, you know, knew what I was doing. And I think that situation precipitated sort of a new, there's a, there was like a second group, I think during the Obama administration was asked to do like an updated version of the report and they didn't have as much literary license, but, um, you know, and, and basically what they said was that like organizations are increasingly stifling that in the in the exploration exploitation trade-off like exploitation you know making use of knowledge you already have and and for applications exploration is creating new knowledge or you know looking looking around and that that like organizations were increasingly not funding that um exploration part of innovation and so the government needs to really step up it's like sometimes when i you know i really admire like a lot of silicon valley innovators and they're like pioneering spirit and all that stuff. And then and, and they're just interested in a lot of stuff. But sometimes it bugs me when I'll hear someone who's big in tech or VC say like, every good thing comes out of the private sector. Like when has the public sector, it only stifles innovation. I'm like, everything you are building comes out of National Science Foundation stuff from the second half of the 20th century. Literally everything from, from public funding. And so I think the venture capital community, it's fantastic to have it so that they can seed some of those moonshot ideas and things that the, and, and, and more immediate applications that aren't right for the government. But, but I think it's, it can be damaging when we downplay the role that public funding has had for allowing people to do the kind of meandering exploration that's led to like tremendous breakthroughs. I agree. I agree. Very much agree. When we talk about greatness, how much should we talk about being a good person how much how much does morality or or manner of being matter in this case to have greatness to what extent does that sort of manner of being or the way you treat others and all that uh, should that should that matter i absolutely think it should matter i'm sort of on the strong okay. end of that of feeling like it should matter okay. i don't think cool. that means we should exile people from society or anything like that but even when like the you know the michael jordan story is told and it's always yelling at his teammates and getting the bam like Tell the Tim Duncan story. Tell the Steph Curry story. Like there's all these, that's, he succeeded in spite of that. Not, not mm. because of it, I think. Mm. I think it's tolerated because of how good he was. And I've been in a workplace where bad behavior has been tolerated because someone was viewed as, you know, having certain special skills, which turned out to be totally replaceable once they were gone. But yeah, I think yeah. Yeah. that, you know, like you mentioned Kanye West and I think he's made some amazing music. I think he has very interesting taste and, and, you know, in design and stuff like that. But I think the first time I probably read an interview with him was, I don't know, 15 years ago, a long time ago. And from the first time I read it, I wasn't sure if it was like a satire about his own opinion of himself or serious because I didn't know anything about him at the time. 
And it doesn't so much surprise me that that road ended in, man, I think Hitler's cool or whatever it was that he said. I don't think that's super unpredictable. And I think we, you know, I don't think we, I absolutely don't think that we should demand like intellectual or moral purity from people who have contributions to make. Like, I think that can be a really damaging thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I don't think we, you know, I think if we say, well, we're going to tolerate people's behavior that goes against our values because they can make this other contribution, then you're going to get more of that. Right. So I think it, it, I think it depends on how do you want your society to look? And then you react, you, you try to shape it with incentives. And if the incentive you give people is they can do anything they want, if they're, you know, they have certain other country, if they get famous enough or whatever, they get certain contributions that are interesting, then you're making sure that you'll get more of that. And I don't think that's, you know, I, I don't want to live in an ends justifies the means kind of world personally. No, me neither. And I, and I, and I'm very interested in moral exemplars, people who are great, uh, because of their, goodness and uh pro-social agency i don't want us to forget examples of 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 moral greatness as well you, you know yeah. can i can i bring one up is yeah, someone yes. that i became that became a role model to me when i was reporting range is francis hesselbein who was the yeah. former ceo of the girl scouts she well she took her first professional job at the age of 54 the yeah. became the later became the ceo of the girl scouts which she basically saved she tripled minority membership. She added 130,000 volunteers, right? Those are people she was paying in a sense of mission. Transformed the organization from one that was like preparing girls for life in the home to one that was preparing them for careers in math and science. Like she gave me a binary code badge for, for girls learning about computers. And Peter Drucker, the management guru, called her the best CEO in America and said she should take over like GM and all this stuff. She turned 107 a few weeks ago. So still working, running Leadership Institute in Manhattan, 107. And teaching at West Point occasionally. So mm. kudos to her. But the thing about that went beyond what I wrote about in the book was being around her, as she would say, leadership is a matter of how to be, not what to do. Mm. And being around her, like you could see she was yeah. living with that. Like one, the, the first time I ever did an interview with her, I go to her office and we do this sort of interview and it's sort of a little formal. But then she invites me to lunch with her after. And I go to lunch and she's, and and it's a lot less formal. And, and someone at the place we went to lunch at the counter was being kind of rude. You know, it was like Manhattan lunch rush hour kind of thing. Was being rude to the server. And she didn't say anything, but she went next and just like started talking to the server. Like, this is, look at all these people. This is, this is really a tough thing to do. Like, this is amazing. You must have to deal with so much stuff here. Like, you're really doing a, you know, a great job. And like saying it loud enough. And you can see everyone else in line was like super nice after that. Right. Like just being around her made yeah. you want to be a better person. At one point I was in a conversation with multiple people where she, she was in the hospital on a phone and you could hear someone like yelling at a nurse and then her telling the nurse like how great of a job she's doing. So she, she doesn't, she's not going aggressive at the other person. She's just like being the example that you would want people to be. And so whenever I was around her, I feel like I was a better person because you kind of have to be, you know, like otherwise you feel embarrassed about yourself. Uh, so that, that made a big impression on me. That leadership is a matter of how to be, not what to do. Love it. My friend actually told me a story recently about uh, the time he met Maya Angelou. Uh, he was, uh, had his baseball cap down and he was just in awe watching her being, uh, and he was very shy, feeling shy, um, as she was walking past him and she came right up to him 
and she took his hat off and and said, "Baby, you should smile more. The world needs your light." Oh and, wow! Uh, it's pretty uh, wow. You know, because like, <laughs> Can you imagine because like sometimes yeah. you think of the thing as like when when people tell women like smile, smile, and it's like really right, really that's true too, like yeah. annoying. Yeah. But when Maya Angelou yeah. says it, and it's when like Maya Angelou, and it's yeah. like poetic gold, I think that's in a different category. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it gets an exemption. <laughs> As a last topic today, were you interested in talking about constraints on creativity and why are you so obsessed with Ulysses? Oh, is the fact that it's like one of the gems of uh, English literature not enough? No, I mean, I, it's, it, I think I'm obsessed with it. Well, I've been reading it recently and I first got interested in the year 1922. This is like this epical year for modernist literature where T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland came out in 1922, James Joyce's Ulysses, and Virginia Woolf's Jacob's Room, which is not one of her more famous ones, but it was her break into modernism. And it was interesting because these things are such incredible works of creativity and unique works. The idea that these people were sort of alighting on something kind of similar at the same time yeah. means it's kind of like yeah. in, the, in, in the ether in a way. And I mean, Ulysses is such a challenging book, but it is so incredible. I mean, it's one of those things if you're willing to put in the work, you know, so I, I probably read a page outside of Ulysses for every page I read inside Ulysses in terms of, you know, to understand what was going on and, and the meaning and the wordplay and all these things. But like, it's such an amazing adventure. I mean, it, it's, it's a domestication of the epic, you know, this, it's structured after the Odyssey. And so every chapter has something that, you know, it can sometimes be hard to tell what it is, but, but once you know, it's not. That represents an episode in the Odyssey, but whereas the Odyssey is this like incredibly grandiose thing, you know, where Odysseus comes home and and kills all the suitors that are like occupying his his home and takes his wife back and shoots a arrow through twelve axe handles. Like Leopold Bloom, the main character of Ulysses, is just trying to get through a day with his dignity intact and holding mostly to his values, while also you know sometimes acting in his self interest. And so he told this epic, but he domesticated it down to the, like the scale of normal life. And, and there's, I, if there's a character in literature who, like, I, I've never even come close to having as much access to the thoughts of a character as Leopold Bloom, the main character in Ulysses. So it's like, yeah. I, I might know his thoughts better than I know my own. Hmm. And that doesn't make him more simple. It actually makes him more complex. And so it made me feel a little better sometimes about like having lots of different thoughts and not totally understanding what's going on with my head. But it's also just, it's a whole, it's funny. It's tremendous wordplay. Like there's a chapter that takes place in a maternity hospital. Maybe, I don't know, maybe like a few minutes or something pass in the whole chapter. But I think there's 40 paragraphs to represent each of the weeks of pregnancy in a maternity hospital. And it like the medium mimics gestation. So it starts with a prose style that's like an early prose style and moves through styles up to modernity, like just naturally as you're going through the writing. So there's all this amazing stuff. And there's, it's just, as a writer, I think reading fiction gives me more ideas for how to structure writing and think about storytelling. It's a creative explosion, an interesting book. And in terms of constraints, what I found fascinating about it was that I think in order to pull off something that unusual and creative, he sort of had to ground it in certain ways in the structure of very familiar things. The Odyssey. You know, the Odyssey... It's clearly influenced by Hamlet, right? Like, so maybe the two like most well-known narratives in all of Western literature and, and a single day. And in some ways, I think the more, the more creative a certain aspect 
of a work is, the more familiar some other aspect has to be so that we don't feel like totally out at sea. You know, so it isn't just purely avant-garde. So we have somewhere to ground yeah. ourselves. So sorry, that was like a really went off on a long no. masterclass and Ulysses. And uh, do you think that's a work of do you think it's a work of genius? Absolutely. I mean, and uh, no one's going to deliberately practice to that <laughs> alone. alone. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see that one coming, but um, yeah, no, I think I mean, it's, you can't. One can't. Yeah. yeah. Merely, merely deliberately practice to writing the next Ulysses. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. And Patricia Stokes uh, should get some shout out for her seminal work on the importance of constraints and creativity. You know what was the first review I ever wrote? Was it really book review? I think that was the first book review I ever wrote, two thousand six. Yeah. One of the reasons I've been thinking about it, I mean, I've been interested in it for a long time. Like, why do why does like a haiku liberate rather than stifle creativity? You know, suddenly makes everyone able to write a poem. But also, I thought that I wanted like total work autonomy in my own life. So after you know, when range came out. I'm, I don't have a day job anymore. Like I'm finally totally on my own, full freedom. And I think I realized after not too long that I had too much freedom and I was getting like too picky about picking a project, becoming too much of a maximizer. And I'm like, I need to stop like just exploring and like explore something. And that informs like the next thing you do, you know, mm. I think it was like uh, Mihai Chicks and Mihai who, who, who wrote mm. something like whose work I'm sure, you know, way better than I do something like, you know, when you commit to a relationship or a life course, maybe he was even saying a marriage. I can't remember exactly what it was, but his point was, that you commit to it so that you can stop wondering how, so that you can start living and stop wondering how to live. Yeah, and, and I, I sort of I felt like that. that with a project. Like, I'm like, I just need to pick something and do it. It may not be the perfect thing, but that's how I'll f stop spending time what to explore and start exploring. And that'll inform the next thing. I freaking love that. I, what did I tweet the other day? <laughs> with my life in tweets here. Um, I tweeted, um, don't wait for the motivation to commit. Commit and it will motivate you. I like that. I want to talk to you more about constraints. I don't think I should use up too much of your podcast time because my mm. thoughts are so like nebulous at the moment that let's get something on the calendar. Even we'll talk about that some other yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> you know how people say that? Let's get something on the calendar. Uh, no, it sounds great, man. Well, we obviously have uh, so much we could continue talking about. I think this was a good, um, a good sampling of some of the main issues in the field. And I worry that a lot of the science applied to a long gone era. You know, Dean Simonton's study of genius. I, I just wondered what extent it applies to this new era mm -hmm. we're living in of, of social media, TikTok, th things where anyone can be hailed a genius within. All it takes is a certain number of followers mm -hmm. to hail you a genius now to be a genius. And I, I think that we see that in a very different way than, uh, than, than ever before in human history. And, uh, and so when you say you wonder if Simonton's work applies, you mean like how he would, how, in terms of how a genius is classified? Um, yeah. I mean, his analyses were based on length in history books, you know, length mm -hmm. in like auto, in, uh, encyclopedias and, um, and trying to come up with objective metrics and things, uh, within certain well classified fields that have operated over long time courses. But I just think we're seeing a new era of fame. And yeah, I'm really, I'm obviously not articulating my point quite well because I don't know exactly what this looks like or what it's going to look like in the next 100, 200 years, but it feels different. Do you think like the label of genius is helpful or not helpful? Because when you asked me, do yeah. I think, do I think Ulysses is a work of genius? I was very quick to say, oh yeah, for sure. And then to mm -hmm. think like, 
how would I define a work of genius? Like, know it when you see it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you think it's a, do you think it's a helpful label? Well, the focus here is on greatness today. And I do think greatness can be defined as top 1%, top 1% maybe of a field on a certain set of metrics. But I think that it, that was easier to, easier to, uh, arrive at, uh, objectively in the past. Unless the metric is followers or something like that, in which case, it's yeah, never okay, been easier. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's a very good point. Maybe it's easier than ever for us to know who's great. Uh, but it just seems like the kind of standards we're holding each other to of greatness right now seem much more uh, soulless. I mean, than- if you wanted to get, if you wanted to like multiply, you know, move your followers tomorrow by an order of magnitude, what you would do is start flamethrowing on stuff that's ridiculous. Exactly right. Right. Yeah. So be divisive as humanly possible. Yeah. Right. That doesn't divisive things. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that would yeah. be a good metric of, of genius. I think, I think a lot of people could increase their follower counts a lot. In ways that yeah. they see other people doing if, you know, if they don't mind like doing things that are bad for everyone. In that way, maybe there's more of a template for greatness than ever before <laughs> in that, in that sense as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's so much to talk about. Yeah. That was like a very like Go on. pessimistic conclusion, like wrapped in optimistic sounding language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause well, you know, it just uh, coming around full circle, uh, beginning when we're talking about. Well, if there was a template, if there were general principles, then everyone would do it. But I think now maybe the, the incentive structures are bad. I mean, I think it is negative, the incentive structures for people getting popularity these days. Um, I think what we're solving for as a society is worries me. It concerns me. For sure. I mean, I think, think even about my own short, like, you know, when, when I was a journalist, wasn't, I'm, I'm still a journalist, but when I was like sort of a daily employed journalism, journalist, if I think about how I thought about like, becoming good and building a reputation and getting a following at that point, it was like, write some interesting articles. And now right. if someone came to me and were like, how do I build a following as a writer? I mean, I wouldn't, if you, they just wanted to build a following, you'd say like, uh, pick some people more famous than you and just start antagonizing them, you know, like in, in like incredibly horrible ways. Like, and they, and you can yeah. build a following that way. But I mean, I guess we're lucky that I think that that kind of thing just like does not feel e- even, even if there's like fame and money on the line, simply not palatable to, to most people. Um, and I feel lucky for that. Yeah. Aristotle, if he was alive, may he rest in peace, would, uh, be like shaking, shaking my damn head. <laughs> this is not eudaimonia. Do you know what I'm saying? That's not, that's not what I meant by eudaimonia. You'd be doing the shaking my head emoji. Yeah. 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 Hey man, thank you so much for coming on today and chatting with me and, and jamming with me about this topic. There's more to come. Lots more to come. That's a pleasure. <laughs> Always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. 
It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 